you'll recall, as we dive into this morning's passage, roughly a year's gone by since Paul's penning of 1 Corinthians, the prequel, a year in which many have come to question Paul's credibility as an apostle on the basis of his various sufferings, his many sufferings, so that part of the purpose of Paul's writing is to address the naysayers in defense of his apostolic authority as a minister of the gospel. And as we've seen throughout this letter, Paul's strategy is not to diminish his suffering, It's not to minimize his weaknesses. His strategy, rather, is to declare just how drastic his suffering truly is, to to boast of his weaknesses so that the power of Jesus may rest upon him, so that God might get the glory. God's power made perfect in weakness, Paul will go on to say. Now, it's one thing for for Paul uh, to declare himself to be feeble and weak, to boast in his own weaknesses. But here in chapter four, Paul's gonna bring you and me along for the ride in this thing, declaring that we too are feeble and weak, calling us to see that weakness and frailty is not a liability as we oftentimes tend to think, but rather an asset, assuming that we long for God to get the glory and not us, assuming that our desire is that he be made much of. And so Paul says in verse seven, to begin this morning's passage, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. What's the treasure that Paul's talking about here? Well, going back to the previous verse, verse six, it's the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It's the treasure of the gospel, to sum it up. Precious cargo for the apostle Paul. And he declares that we have this treasure in jars of clay, a metaphor for human frailty. Pottery back in the city of Corinth in Paul's day could could be bought in the marketplace on the cheap with a life expectancy of a few years at best. We're not talking pottery barn here. Mostly used to, to carry water, olive oil, grain, wine, things like that. As much the focal point of society as a Tupperware container would be today. That's the metaphor that Paul uses in describing the human condition formed out of the dust, to dust we shall return, weak, fragile, momentary. Paul's very own body, living proof of man's frailty, scarred by the countless beatings that he had received. You could say it this way, the sands of time and the sufferings of this world, they eventually force their hand, don't they? Force our hand. They they, they prove that that we can't hide our, our weaknesses and frailties Forever. I woke up yesterday morning pummeled by what I would describe, I guess, as a varsity version of a head cold. You may hear it in my voice even this morning. Woke up with some of the symptoms still uh, revealing their ugly heads. And, and as I stand before you, I made the joke during mic check that, of course, the week that we would go through the jars of clay passage, the preaching pastor would get sick, and not on like Monday or Tuesday with some time to recover, but on Saturday. Um, and I also jokingly said that I pray that when we get to 2 Corinthians 11 and we go through Paul's laundry list of sufferings, that like his story will suffice, right? We don't, none of us need to add to Paul's work there. Um, the truth is God, God never intended for us to hide our weaknesses. We try our hardest to do it. Paul will go on to say, chapter 11, verse 30, if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weaknesses. 
In in attempting to to hide our weaknesses and sufferings, we actually live counterintuitively to, to what God made us for. Sam Storms in his commentary says, God has sovereignly orchestrated the salvation of the weak and despised, to use that 1 Corinthians language, the foolish and the frail, so that when much is achieved, he rather than they will be honored. That we were made to show the surpassing power of God as we carry around the priceless treasure of the gospel in fragile clay pots. Living, breathing examples, going back to last week, of the miraculous, creational, illuminating power of God shining in the hearts of the fragile and weak. In fact, to go a little further with that clay pot imagery, the more cracks and fractures, which come with age and through affliction oftentimes, the more openings through which the light of the knowledge of the glory of God can actually shine making it clear that the power at work in, in our lives, the power at work in our ministries, it's not owing to us, but rather to God. Going back to last week, Paul doesn't keep on keeping on on the basis of some sort of self-empowered greatness. He keeps on keeping on because he knows that God's ministry will succeed and God's mercy will sustain him. He goes on to say in verse eight, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed. Very famous verses where Paul continues to unpack this jars of clay imagery, providing this list of four contrasts of human weakness and divine strength. He says, we're afflicted in every way but not crushed, like a clay pot that's squeezed but never fully shattered by the squeezing, so that we may experience affliction but we'll never be ultimately crushed in Christ. He says we're perplexed, but not driven to despair, that we may experience confusion, discouragement, even doubt at times, but we will never be left completely hopeless because our ultimate hope is in our unfailing God. He says persecuted, but not forsaken. We may experience mistreatment and opposition by those who don't believe in and agree with our message but never fully abandoned and alone. Our God will never leave us nor forsake us, scripture says. We know that because Jesus was forsaken in our place. Paul says, struck down but not destroyed. Thrown to the mat in seeming defeat is the imagery associated with that phrase, struck down, but never utterly and fully brought to an end. That we may even experience death, but we know that on the other side of death is resurrection because of our crucified and risen Savior and King who sets the pattern for us. Paul goes on to say in verse 10, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh Verse 12, so death is at work in us, but life in you. Paul Paul knew the the kind of suffering that comes by identifying with Jesus, the kind of persecution and opposition that comes as a minister of the new covenant. But, But he also knew the resurrection power of God, the very same God who raised Jesus from the dead. We already saw this back in chapter one, verses eight and nine, where Paul says, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despised of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on 
God who raises the dead. The, the apostle Paul was brought to the end of himself over and over and over and over again, physically and emotionally, despairing of life itself, feeling that he had received the sentence of death. Perfect opportunity for God to flex with resurrection power, which God loves to do. The same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead so that burdens that are beyond our strength, anyone bring any of those into this place this morning? They're meant to bring us face to face with the insufficiency of self-reliance so that we might more deeply rely on the God of resurrection power, a God who raises the dead. And, And notice the unique language of verse 12. Paul says, so death is at work in us, but life in you. That according to verse 12, God uses those experiences of affliction to bring life to those around us. That God's power exhibited in our weaknesses, in our sufferings, it's life-giving to those who are privileged to look in on it, which is all the more reason why we shouldn't hide our weaknesses and sufferings. I've said this before, One of the most devastating things to me is seeing people retreat when life gets hard. And don't we all have the propensity to do that, to isolate ourselves when things get difficult? And not only is that tragic because of what's lost in terms of the encouragement and comfort of God's people directed toward us in the midst of those sufferings and hardships, but it's also tragic because it's an opportunity lost for God's power to be put on display through our human weakness. So that I would go so far as to say, I think this could be an added chapter to C.S. Lewis's screw tape letters, that, that it's a tactic of the enemy to whisper in our ear to pull away from others when life gets hard. God loves to flex when we're at the end of ourselves, which I would argue then means that we need to be most invested in the church, in our mission field, whatever that may be, when we're most debilitated, Crazy as that may sound, when we're most discouraged, when we're most insecure, when we're most fearful even, that God's strength made perfect in those experiences of death at work in us, it's life-giving to those around us who are given evidence of that surpassing power of God as he radiantly shines through the cracks and fractures to the praise of his glorious grace. Paul goes on to say in verse 13, Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, quote, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Paul references Psalm 116 here. I believed and so I spoke, aligning himself with the the same kind of trust that the psalmist exhibited in a moment of affliction at a time when he nearly died and was delivered from death. We know the apostle Paul had that same kind of near-death experience in the city of Lustra, out of which God delivered him so that Paul could declare, just like the psalmist, that our God is in fact a God of deliverance. Paul would say, I've seen it with my very own eyes. I've experienced it. And so have many of us in this room a God whose goodness, glory, and grace must be proclaimed. Paul says, I've got to talk about it. I've got to tell others about it. 
Christian and non-Christian alike. I cannot shut my mouth on who this God is and what he does. But notice for Paul that it's not just a declaration that looks to the past, to the scriptures of the Old Testament, but also to the future. As Paul declares that God who raised Jesus from the dead will raise his people, bringing them into his glorious presence. That we talk about it all the time, not just on Easter here. That our hope is in a risen Jesus, his resurrection setting the pattern for us as Christians. That because Jesus rose from the dead, we believe that there's something on the other side of pain. We believe that there's something on the other side of suffering and head colds and even death. Namely, infinite joy in the presence of our great God and King, Jesus Christ. That's what enabled Paul to keep going. It's not easy to face sickness and suffering when we think that this broken world is the only one we're ever going to taste, is it? It's not easy to risk our money. It's not easy to risk our reputation. It's not easy to risk our lives. When we walk in trust that Jesus' resurrection has opened the door for the, the most all-satisfying happily ever after the world has ever known, only then, I would argue, are we, are we really free, truly free, free to take risks for the sake of the gospel, free to hopefully endure suffering and hardship, knowing that, that even our wounds and scars are setting the stage for the glory that is to come. And not only joy, but, but the glory of God is at stake here as Paul expects grace to extend to more and more people, verse 15, as they look in on God's sustaining grace in the life of the apostle Paul in the midst of his affliction. And with more people, Paul says, verse 16, comes increased thanksgiving to the glory of God. More people singing of God's praises. And we have the same privilege. That's not isolated to the apostles in the apostolic age. We get to see grace extend to more and more people too. As we declare this sufficiency of God in the midst of our afflictions, as we show his surpassing power shining in and through our cracks, our fractures as the clay pots that we are. And someday, Revelation 7, 9, the more and more people that Paul speaks of here will become a multitude that none of us can count because it's so big. Every, every nation, Revelation 7 says, all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb. More grace, more people, more thanksgiving, more glory. So that Paul can say in verse 16, so we don't lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. On the one hand, and many of us know this, if you're just old enough, our bodies grow older and weaker over time as we come face to face with our own mortality. At the same time, crazy as it is to think, we're being strengthened with power through God's spirit in our inner being, Ephesians 3.16. We're being conformed to the image of God's son, Romans 8.29. Going back to the end of chapter three of this very book of the Bible, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. It's amazing to think that these two contrasting realities are unfolding simultaneously. The continued decline of the outer self 
in the continued glorious transformation of the inner self. And to add crazy on top of crazy, to think that oftentimes the wasting away of the outer self when we come face to face with our own mortality, those moments can oftentimes act as the greatest catalyst of deeper inner transformation. As that, quote, wasting away, to use Paul's language, leads us to deeper dependence on God, deeper trust in God, a greater longing for the day when we shall see him as he is. And the good work that he began in us shall be brought to completion. Paul closes out chapter four, some of my favorite verses in in all of scripture. He says, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Paul's gonna go on to, I alluded to this earlier, to present us with a laundry list of sufferings that he experienced in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Imprisonments, countless beatings, a stoning, three shipwrecks as if one wasn't enough, adrift at sea, traveling dangers, hunger, and thirst, exposure to the elements, even anxiety for the churches that he had planted. I mean, let's be honest, his afflictions make most of our experience of suffering seem small by comparison. My head cold is nothing today, comparatively. And yet for the apostle Paul, even he could declare his affliction to be light, to be momentary, I'll be honest with you. I didn't feel that way when I woke up this morning. I felt like this head cold was the biggest thing weighing on my existence today. Like any of us who have ever had a head cold, it feels like it's never going to end, right? How can Paul talk like that? How can Paul think like that? And I think the answer is found in the contrasting glory the weight of glory beyond all comparison, to use his language. In one sense, it's a glory that will someday be revealed in us. Paul says very similar language to verse 17 of 2 Corinthians 4 in Romans 8, 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed in us. Or to use... Again, his language at the end of 2 Corinthians 3, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. That that there's a glory that will someday be revealed in us as God does in fact bring that good work he began in us to completion. Most scholars don't even try to touch what that means in its fullness because we can't comprehend it. But what we do know is that the heavenly Jerusalem someday will be a place of righteousness and perfection because you and I who are in Christ along with God's redeemed throughout the ages will be the glorified versions of ourselves. In addition, as if that weren't enough, an even more awe-inspiring sense, we will someday, and this goes back to the last couple weeks, behold the very glory of the living God unhindered. Going back to last week, 
Chapter four, verse four, we were made for the glory of Christ who is the image of God. We were made for the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, verse six. There is no deeper satisfaction than seeing and savoring God's glory in Jesus Christ. Meaning that the glory of God is not a means to something greater. It's not a stepping stone to that which we want more than the glory of God. The basking in the presence of God's glory, that's what we were made for. It is, in fact, the most and deepest satisfying joy in all the universe. Paul Paul understood, if I could say it this way, that what awaited him, it was nothing less than the never ceasing joy of basking in the very presence of God's glory. That, That when Paul talks about the seen versus the unseen, the transient versus the eternal, he's not contrasting the physical and the spiritual. We'll see that more next week as we dive into chapter five. He's contrasting the present and the future. What are the things that are seen? What are the things that are transient? They're the present sufferings. They're the head colds of this world. The things that make this world sad. They will not last forever. What are the things that are unseen? What are the things that are eternal? They're the future glories of the age to come. A world in which sadness shall be no more. A world in which suffering shall be no more. No more thorns and thistles. No more financial hardship, no more sin, no more being sinned against, no more putting our hope in things that disappoint, no more sickness, no more pain, no more hunger, no more hate, no more sadness, no more funerals, no more running from God, no more hiding. In the end, all of us who are in Christ will dwell with God and enjoy the eternal weight of his glory forever. C.S. Lewis in his work, The Weight of Glory, says this, and I'll walk us through this quote because this is heavy language, and rightly so. He says, the faint far-off results of those energies which God's creative rapture implanted in matter when he made the worlds are what we now call physical pleasures, which is a, really heavy way of saying God made some really cool stuff in the world that we can enjoy. Things like the sun on our face, good food and drink. Lewis goes on to say, and even thus filtered, those physical pleasures are too much for our present management. We don't know how to handle those things well. We distort them, we overindulge in them so that the joy of of sun shining on our face turns into a sunburn. The enjoyment of good food and drink turns into gluttony and drunkenness. Lewis goes on to ask, what would it be to taste at the fountainhead, the source of all of that, that stream of which even these lower reaches prove so intoxicating? Yet that, he says, I believe is what lies before us. That's what waits ahead. The whole man is to drink joy from the fountain of joy. Like, if you've ever wondered, that's the kind of thinking, that's the kind of imagery that causes imprisoned saints to sing hymns of joy. That's it. Knowing that that the heaviness of any affliction that we might experience in this world, that that heaviness pales in comparison to the weight of the glory to come. That Paul even goes so far as to say, and this blows my mind a bit, 
that every single affliction, every single one, is meaningful in preparing us. Every affliction preparing us for that very glory. Think about that the next time you go through a season of affliction. That it's getting you ready all the more to drink from that fountain of everlasting joy. That'll change the way you, you view the furnace of affliction in this life, won't it? Lewis goes on to say elsewhere in another of his writings, The Great Divorce, I've shared this quote before. He says, some mortals say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it, not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. God's gonna do it. Every wound, every scar preparing us for an eternal weight of glory, a glory to be revealed in us and a glory to be revealed to us as we forever bask in the presence of his glory, the fountainhead of eternal joy. And so the takeaway is very simple this morning. It comes back to verse 16. So saints of God, do not lose heart. And if you begin to lose heart, come back to the end of 2 Corinthians chapter 4 because Paul has bookended verse 16 with reasons to keep on keeping on. We're gonna to continue to, to worship this God who gives us all these reasons to forge ahead for his glory and our joy in a moment. We do so in a number of ways around here as we come out of the sermon each week through our collective song. We have an opportunity to, to sing to this God, for this God, of this God together, bringing our voice together in unity to praise him, to praise him for his goodness, his glory, his grace. We have an opportunity to worship through the receiving of communion. If you're a Christian, that meal is for you. We take the bread here, representing the broken body of Jesus, and we dip it in the cup, representing his shed blood. What a, what a beautiful opportunity to celebrate so much of what we see in these verses this morning as we come receive of the bread and the cup. Reminded that there would be no pattern for our resurrection on the other side of death were it not for Jesus's life, death, and resurrection. That there would be no hope of glory to come were it not for what Jesus accomplished for us. Remember that as you look at every promise Every word of hope in these morning's uh, verses of scripture as you come receive of the elements. There will be people to pray uh, with and for you in the back of the auditorium if you'd like prayer. Particularly, I would say, if, if you come in this morning, you go, I know what it is to feel feeble. I know what it is to feel weak today. I know what it is to feel maybe even mortal I know what it is to, to be run through the ringer, to, to walk through something of the furnace of affliction. Even if you feel a little silly comparatively to the afflictions of the Apostle Paul, you're not silly. Like I said, God wants to show his glory and power through your cracks and fractures. So I'd encourage you to bring those to others, to pray with and for you in the midst of what you're experiencing, to ask God to move, to, to help your heart to cling to these promises this morning all the more to ask him to glorify himself, to use the present cracks and fractures to give some purpose to them that you might see.